Hello, and welcome to the Sensilab Creative AI Podcast, episode 16. My name is John McCormack. I'm the director of Sensilab, and joining me at the console today, physicist and PhD researcher Nina Ratchic. Hey. Hey, Nina. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And our special guest star is back, the George Costanza in the Seinfeld of Computational Creativity, <laughs> Professor Simon Colton. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Yeah, our ratings went up so much last episode, we decided yeah. to have you back as a regular yeah. special guest star. So. <laughs> star power. What can I share? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's been a big week in creative AI again this week with the announcement by OpenAI that they've released a new model of the GPT-2, the 1.5 billion parameter model. Yeah. Nina, what is GPT-2 and what (laughs) is significant about the 1.5 billion parameters? Well, so this model is the full model, which they kind of at the beginning, maybe what, six months to a year ago, said they weren't going to release, you know, for fear of misuse. Um, And and by misuse, they were worried about what people fake news fake news fake news yeah i guess so i mean there's probably more to it i'm not totally sure exactly what they think i I always thought it was fake news on a on an individual level anyone can write fake news and put it out there on twitter but this can be fake news targeted to individual people on a mass scale yeah Yeah, and also on a mass scale scale. you can automate the production of large volumes of text yeah that appears to be written by a person on any topic that you like yep yeah. yeah, so that's what the GPT-2 is. <laughs> that describes it quite well. Um, so, yeah, they finally released the full model after doing a bunch of research about the potential dangers and, like, kind of getting a lot, a bit of, you know, a team of collaborators together to kind of figure out whether this was a good idea. Mm. And they, I think they've, you know, have a bit of, like, a few countermeasures that they're kind of implementing. So they released some code that basically tells you the likelihood of whether a, a piece of text was generated by the GPT-2. Yeah, so there's uh, websites like I think the Allen Institute has the full GPT-2 model. They've had it for a while. Mm. And you can both generate text, like news stories with that, and you can also check text and it will tell you if it thinks it's machine generated or human generated. Yeah, which is, I mean, I think that's a good kind of way around the misuse thing, mainly because just like the straight, the plain GPT-2, like that hasn't been retrained, probably kind of is very, you know, that's like an easy detectable thing. Um, Hmm. But the model is so big that it it takes a lot to actually be able to retrain it, which is something that I found when I was trying to (laughs) retrain it on my own corpus of text. Yeah. So we'll talk more about that in a minute, but why did they release it now when they said they weren't going to? What's changed? Well, they have an automatic system that can spot... GPT-2's output with about 95% accuracy. Um, so, so it's just, yeah. it's purely that they think they can detect anything that's fake. That I, seems yeah. to be the case, yeah. I think they've come out and said they've seen no strong evidence of misuse so far. Mm, so far. Yeah. And we need standards for studying bias. Language models have biases. Working out how to study these biases, discuss them and address them is a challenge for the AI research community. So that maybe they kind of they want that as a contribution. Mm. Has there been any examples of um, it producing inappropriate text, which is horribly racist or sexist or mm, anti-Semitic? I haven't seen anything thing. on Twitter. Actually. No, no, no. Yeah, I think that that probably. I think they've actually they actually censored it quite a bit. So the the source of the training data was from Reddit posts, right? Eight million documents. Yeah. Yeah, it's largely Reddit posts or links to Reddit posts. Yeah. So maybe they did some filtering <laughs> for. Reddit's not known for its, you know, <laughs> holding back. People no, don't, uh, you know. that's yeah. the point of it in a way. But, yeah. I mean, it could have been worse. They could have trained it on 4chan or 8chan <laughs> posts. <and laughs> True. 
you know, bread a, bread a monster. Yeah. So, Nina, you've been using it a lot and this latest model you've downloaded and you've tried to retrain because you, you use it for your poetry generation. Yeah. What were the problems that you encountered with retraining? So I thought, I mean, I could just, I, I my current model is uh, based off the 345 megabyte model. Yeah. Um, so I thought it'd be just like a simple kind of, oh yeah, let me just kind of download this and retrain it. But yeah, 1.5 billion, that's yeah. <laughs> just a little bit more. <laughs> Very naive of me. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we have a NVIDIA DGX kind of GPU here that we use, which mm. is... Very expensive piece of eight, GPU hardware. Yeah, eight GPUs of 16 gigabytes of memory each. Yep. That seems pretty big, but I just wasn't, basically ran out of memory when I tried to load the model and retrain it. So yeah, I'm kind of stuck... There's a lot of people. A lot of people have had the similar issue, even with the seven seven four megabyte model. Mm. So I think this this seems like a weird. I mean, I'm not surprised now. It's weird that I thought that I could. <laughs> well, I think it's weird, but it, I mean, it raises a really interesting question, right? So if you're you know an individual or an artist or an individual researcher, and you don't have access to millions of dollars worth of GPU hardware, you mm. know, can you ever even use these models? Can you take advantage of them? Or are they only for people with I mean, we, we're, we're very well provided for. Like a DGX is an expensive piece of hardware. It's not cheap. It's, yeah. not, it's beyond the, uh, you know, an individual could never afford to buy one. Mm-hmm. What, what do you both think? Is this a I, danger? Mm, not to me. I, I, I tried to raise this with you guys earlier in the week. And I'm not sure I got very far, but I'll try <laughs> again. Um, I imagine, take this to the extreme, that it takes years to train a, a neural model with, you know, terabytes of ram to do it no one's ever going to even attempt to redo that but that thing could be an amazing discovery for the earth mm. and i kind of think of it the same way as finding a massive diamond in the earth you it's a rare thing it's a discovery so i i think of the although of course you can download it um, but i think of it the gpt2 as a, a, a scientific discovery discovery of an algorithm for producing text in a in a plausible way mm. and if you think about it as, as a one-off discovery like a diamond rather than a discovery of a theorem or a, or a hypothesis um, then it's easier to come to terms with the fact that not everyone can can get there I, yeah, I tried training something to do the same thing that AlphaGo Zero did. You, you need Google's resources to be able to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. I got that from Demis Havasabis himself. He said there's no way they would have beaten the Go champion without the farms of GPUs uh, that they have over in Google. And one of the reasons they allowed Google to buy the company was for that reason, to, um, to have access to those resources. It sort of raises another question, though, too, that even universities are not equipped with sufficient GPU resources on their own to be able to make these discoveries. So are we going to, in the future, rely purely on large corporations like OpenAI and Google to do all the discovering? And, it's, you know, they choose the models and the data that they choose to train it on. Isn't that limiting? I think it's incumbent on us as AI researchers outside of industry to come up with better ways of doing AI than training <laughs> vast 1.5 billion node neural networks in order to do this. Yeah. Um, we used to do more energy and we used to do that but we were never able to produce models like gpt2 yeah nothing is to this Mm. kind of quality but that didn't you know preclude us coming up with something better but i agree i mean we can't check these results we can't pass these eight million things we as a team here at sensor lab can't check whether gpt2 has actually been trained in the way that they purport it's been trained so Mm. we can't check the validity of their results yeah I guess the only thing that really concerns me is when you're using it as a creative kind of tool as i'm using it and the same goes for like GANs and other generative systems. Uh, I don't know when people when there's when it's really just like exclusive who can actually like 
develop art or like you know create things with these systems. It, it's, it excludes people. Yeah, and I, but also sure. that kind of makes me. That's I mean that's kind of true in a lot of art, but it just makes me feel a bit uncomfortable about like is the only reason this stuff is popular is because we are kind of the first people that are doing it, and the novelty factor is there for people who have access to the to the technology. But then you know what I mean? They're kind of getting that benefit of releasing it early or or creating these new you know with the new technology the idea of technology or using art to make technology being the technology being inaccessible isn't new so like i've been working in that area for a long time and you know the reason why i came to a university in the first place was because i couldn't afford to buy the graphics computer that i would need to do the graphics that i wanted to do or i didn't have the compute power in a machine that i could afford so you know i looked to institutions to provide those facilities for me but now we've gone up a, kind of another step in that even institutions don't necessarily have that equipment it's not like it costs you know hundreds of thousands mm. of dollars it costs millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars even in the case of openai yeah so there is this there's this kind of point of exclusion to where only a few privileged companies and individuals get to determine the state of the art in research which is kind of fundamentally different than the way that research has been carried out in the past, do you think, or not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, indeed, yeah. I'm, I'm trying We're all to, agreeing. Well, yeah. really I know, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I, mean, I was just trying to think of an um, example in art history, art history where you know, the only privileged few could use gold leaf, for example, like Klimt did. Um, mm. Only a privileged few could use or Lazarus. Blue. Blue, blue. Lazarus Lapula. Yeah. Lazarus something. Lapis Lazi. That's right, yeah. um, because it was incredibly rare mineral. Very expensive. So it's not, you know, it, it does have historical context um, and people have to do well as artists in order to be able to have access to the you know, bigger machines in this case. I, mm. I don't worry about it too much from that perspective, from an exclusivity point of view. I worry more about it from the scientific point of view of, of checking results. Mm. But I worry about it from a diversity point of view. So mm. think of all the amazing things that you could do with this tool. Like you've got basically a neural network that can generate text on almost any topic. You know, it's trained on a on a vast volume of human culture, or at least in English, I guess, is mm. probably something we should be mindful of. But only a few people have, I mean, any, anyone can download the model, but, you know, like Nina, in your work, you, you're retraining and that's what makes it interesting because you're mm. putting in specific kinds of poetry and other material and it sort of adopts the personality of that poetry yeah. and that's what makes it interesting in a creative sense if you just use the normal model without retraining it wouldn't have been the same right mm. no not at all i mean i did that at the beginning but yeah it definitely adds a lot and i think that's an, an important thing to be able to like actually add your own kind of creative input into the yeah. process so by not being able to do that i think it's going to limit the creative possibilities of it for a while until at least it becomes you know of course hardware will fall in price and maybe in 10 years time we'll all have watches that can run gpt2 and retrain it or something but at the moment we don't have that so yeah. it's it's very early days and so it's only a few people who are who are working with it in a way other than just using it for something yeah 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 okay but the, yeah <laughs> limited resource if you think of gpt2 as an as an actor and I'm, I'm this is off the top of my head now but we can't all hire a famous actor for our videos. Um, so or with deep fakes, we don't need to. Well, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, th this is a generative system which outputs text as if it was like a human was saying it. Mm. Um, so maybe GPT-2 should be seen as a, a rare resource like a, a good actor is, um, that it shouldn't be available to everyone. Maybe it devalues it. If the whole world can use GPT-2, um, does it devalue it? That's what that's kind of what I was saying. Like, it is the only reason people kind of consider this art good is just for the novelty factor that so few people can use it. 
that it just seems so interesting. Like if I'm trying to, you know, mm. submit to some, ex- you know, competitions yeah, or you, whatever. It gives you a lot of, you know, kind of artistic street cred, right? To say yeah. I've retrained the GPT-2 1.5 billion parameter model. Yeah. Uh, I deserve a Lumen Prize for that, you know, because nobody else can do that. The, I mean, this yeah. is a big problem I've always had with creative AI, which is art has always had the shock of the new and technology has always been at the kind of bleeding edge of, of, of novelty. But, it's um, not so much the shock of the new, it's more the shock of it not actually doing what it promised to do. <laughs> sure, um, but most of the creative AI I see is, is basically uninteresting ways of using interesting technologies. And when the hype dies down around deep learning or generative deep learning, that what we'll be left with is you know really quite poor artworks which happen to be <laughs> created with cool techniques back in the day. Mm. Um, so Savage. It's, wow. <laughs> well, I mean, think about very bad impressionist artists. You know, there were some at the time, I'm sure. They produced really bad daubs, but because they were doing it on plein air with, you know, uh, capturing the moment and they were buying there, into but it. But there were good ones too. For sure. Um, but um, lots of, you know, what I'm seeing is is basically just this is great because it was generated by an AI, not this is great because it's great. Mm. Um, and, yeah. you know. I think we're all on the same page with that one. Mm. Yeah. Another interesting question this raises too is the kind of environmental credentials of deep learning as well. So these models with these massive numbers of parameters and the huge data sets that they're trained on, they need energy to do that. The GPUs need a lot of energy to do that. This is something that we should be worried about. And again, for individuals using it, they may even have access to the hardware, but then they've got to pay the power bill mm. to to you know to do a significant amount of retraining. I agree. I mean, this is the uh, the Thunberg effect. I haven't really yeah. thought about this. Until training. <laughs> it should be. There should be a Swedish word for like training shame. You know, like this training flight shame. shame. Yeah. yeah, there should be training shame or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Yeah. We'll do a cardboard poster for you, Simon, that you can sit outside the lab on Fridays <laughs> saying uh, research strike for climate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, you throw into the mix um, the fact that academics are really very bad. Uh, academic researchers are very bad for the climate because we go everywhere on flights. Very much so. And I'm obviously a worst offender on, on that, yep. um, having jobs in different countries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It just seems excessive to to train a neural model with such energy usage if it's only 5% better than another model which took a millionth of the energy to produce it. And this is because in machine learning there was a divergence. There was a parallel reasons to do machine learning in the old days, one of which was understandability. Can you understand what something is doing with a machine learning model? Like, mm. And uh, neural networks are very bad for that because they're black boxes, and decision trees are very good for that. But decision trees aren't as powerful in terms of predictive accuracy. So, And that came to dominate. And, of course, lots of machine learning techniques are more energy efficient, but that seems to be overlooked. I think there should be a training shame. Uh, I think you heard that, you yeah. heard that here <laughs> yep. first from yep. John McCormack. Yeah, when the Wikipedia entry is written just put my name on there yeah um and uh, th- there should be this kind of you know feeling that you've wasted a lot of energy to produce something which you could have produced with c4.5 this ancient um decision tree learning algorithm which is just as good at predicting the stock market for the day or whatever but do you think that companies who do this might argue that well even a five percent or a tiny percentage increase is important because you know this is this is kind of the state of the art this is world leading stuff and for us to get five percent more you know it's it's hard for a researcher to say i'm not going to go there because it uses too much energy but if i did go there 
this could be a breakthrough. That's a hard. Mm. It's a hard thing to say no to. Right? Also, I mean, for researchers, someone has to go there, right? They're the people that go there, but it's not like everybody is adopting that technology and using really complicated deep neural networks when they're doing machine learning. I mean, I think a lot of like it's it's amazing the effect that deep learning has had on the research community mm. globally. Anyway, so people who work in who've worked in AI for a long period of time. I mean, there's still some stalwarts like Simon holding out, but the dinosaurs. Your dinosaurs, exactly. <laughs> Um, but it has fundamentally, you know, I was talking to someone the other day in our, in our faculty who's an um, AI researcher, been researching for a long time. And I said, oh, do you do anything with deep learning? He goes, oh, yeah, every, we all do it. We all do deep learning now. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> it's kind eyes. of, yeah, rolling his eyes. Like it's kind of, you have to say you're doing it in order to, you know, to have kind of street cred as a researcher yeah. now. Absolutely. You, yeah, you it's do. pretty sad. I mean, but it does work very well. I don't want to downplay that aspect of it. But maybe it's not industry you look at first. It works too well in a way. Maybe the <laughs> arts it should look at first. You know, there are environmentalists um, mm. campaigning for... Yeah, know, but um, I mean, these artists, of reasons. they're not training their own. I mean, sometimes they're, okay, they're retraining like me, but a lot of the time they're not really using a lot of energy when they're creating the artworks. Like the models exist or it's kind of already to the to that, you know, they've gotten so far and then they're kind of using that, right? So we, we, maybe we should just explain, just for clarification, the energy consumption is much higher for training than it is for running the network. So there's two, there's, you know, roughly speaking, there's two stages. There's the input data that you put in to train the network and that's very compute intensive. Mm-hmm. Once the network has the weights set, and you just run the network, so you put stuff into it and it does the classification or the generation, that still uses energy, but far less energy than the yeah. training phase. So it is the training that is the most yeah, energy intensive. Sure. But yeah. lots of artists are like that. I follow yeah. a GAN artist on Twitter, I won't mention his or her name, but they tweeted at Christmas um, that they were keeping their feet warm on their GPU processor. <laughs> oh, I know who this is already. <laughs> you, you know that, yeah. that tweet, did you? Um, and, yeah. um, and it's, I, I thought, how funny at the time, but now the Thunberg effect is <laughs> affecting even me. And I'm not an environmentalist, that's for sure. Um, but I am thinking maybe this is a great way to be a dinosaur with a cause, that, you know, someone has to worry about the environmental uh, impact of AI. And I'm, I'm certainly I haven't, you know, I've read about this. Other people, you know, are worried about this. It's mm. not just something we've made up for this podcast. It's, no, no, it's a thing out there for sure. No, it is. Yeah. But I think my understanding. I mean, there are. It's a. It's a legitimate branch of computer science research now. Is about the or in software engineering mm. is about how much energy any computer software uses. And obviously, apps that are deployed worldwide, like web browsers, Microsoft Word, uh, or you know, all the Office Suite and those those kinds of things, they're all the big energy users because people just leave them running on their computer and they don't often don't switch their computer off when they go home. Mm. So there's, there's a, a huge amount of energy that's being used, not just in deep learning, but in all software that's being running on a, on a computer. And it's becoming an increasingly large part of global energy consumption because there's, you know, data centers everywhere. And a lot of them sure are green powered and the big companies like Apple and Google kind of go out of their way because they're usually shamed by organizations like Greenpeace that audit them mm. about how much energy their data centers use. But these models, they're only going to get bigger, right? They're not going to mm. get smaller. Well, they're no, no. There, there's research into being able to produce smaller neural models, which are more effective. I mean, I think that's the way AI researchers in universities should go. We don't have the compute power to just get bigger and bigger models. We should be investigating ways in which to make them smaller. And there's some quite well-known papers in Neurips and, and so on, which have actually sold themselves on reducing the size of the models and yet... Mm. Retaining the accuracy or the generative power, mm. so I think, and and maybe neural networks is is not the only fruit, you know. Maybe there will be other methods coming from AI which uh, are much easier to train smaller models and um, equally as effective. 
There might be, but after, what, 60 years of research, we haven't found any. Well, it depends on what you try and do. Try and get a neural network to prove a theorem and it's going to fall flat. Yeah. Um, it's just useless at that at the moment. But I actually believe the people who are looking into this, feeding enough theorems and proofs, a neural network will be able to learn how to produce a proof. Mm. It will be strange that they can do that without classical logic. Um, but I actually I believe the hype on that. It's not there yet, but it's possible. The energy consumption of the human brain is three watts. Is that right? I'm just making that up, but I'm sure <laughs> I read it somewhere. I did not but know this fact. The human brain is, is yeah, the energy consumption is it's three watts. And that's a small amount. I'm no electrician. Uh, yeah, that, well, that you think about, small. you know, a light bulb is, I mean, even an energy efficient light bulb is usually like 10 watts or something. Okay. Or, you know, and yeah. an old incandescent one was 60 or 120. So wow. it's pretty, if 10 billion neurons being powered biologically, by far less power. So there's certainly, mm, you know, it's not, it's not that it's impossible to do. Let's move on now to talk about some other aspects of this GPT-2 text generation. Yeah. And I want to talk about the the style of text that it generates. So, you know, there is this sort of battle to see whether a machine can even detect if it's generated by a machine or not. But all mm. the examples I've seen, particularly maybe in the smaller models, one of the things that I find fascinating about them is that it doesn't actually really feel like text that was written by a human. And I, I like that fact. I like that it has a kind of machineness about it, an algorithmic yeah. aesthetic or an algorithmic feel about totally, it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's what drew me to generative poetry originally. Yeah. Like I, and I also, it's just an, it's crazy experience just reading it as well. Cause it's almost like, like the sound of the words sound like they're supposed to be, you know, give, give some meaning into your brain, but just kind of like flows over and just like you just don't, nothing really like ever fits. And it's, I, I find that yeah. really, really interesting. I mean, it, it could be all trickery. I mean, it is all trickery. It's not that the, that it's trying to do that, but it's it's like a kind of idiot savant trying to, you know, just coming out with all this stuff that you think, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that combination of things or why did it use that word when yeah. it could when it should have used this one yeah but that that is actually the thing that makes it interesting to me totally there's, yeah there's lots of ways to interpret this i'm still trying to get my head around it um but <laughs> well you'll come around to it eventually yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure yeah. i mean i think it's fascinating um are we thinking about gpt2 are we projecting onto humanity um and saying to ourselves if that was a person saying those things what would that person be like and that, that's a that's a. I just you, don't think of it as a person. Yeah, I don't think of it like that either. I that's know it's not. not a person, and that doesn't bother me. So why do you ask the question? Why did it use that word rather than this? Because that's a question you'd ask of a person, not of a neural model. The no, answer will be because this input flowed through the neural network well, and this as signal a unit. Computer scientist asked that question as more from an algorithmic. Like, why did mm. the algorithm choose that? Yeah. You'll never know the answer to that. Question, no, probably not. Get the answer to. It doesn't keep me awake at night, I admit that. The, but The other way to interpret this is going back to this idea of a discovery. If a, if a, I'm going to try again. If, <laughs> if, a, if a meteorite came to Earth, a big one, let's say, um, you know, scientists would be all over it and they would try and discover what's in it and drill into it and scan it. I think what artists are doing with this GPT-2 is, is treating it like a meteorite. Um, and the way they're drilling into it is by giving it different inputs by giving it um, different contexts within to work, whether it's poetry. A guy um, on the internet, on, on Twitter at the moment, is feeding into it stories generated in the 1970s by um, systems called like, like Minstrel mm. um, and getting it to complete them in, in fascinating ways. So we're, we're taking this discovery, the GPT-2 model, um, and we're trying to probe it um, in this way. So it's not 
treating it like a human. It's more like treating it like a, an asteroid with fascinating yeah. um, could you, could aspects. You, could you think of it as a kind of foreign intelligence, not a human intelligence in a way that humans are intelligent? Mm. A non-human intelligence is the way I've called it in, in my recent paper. Yeah. <laughs> is it right to ascribe the word intelligence? That's what I'm trying to drill down to. I, I, I always feel that feels wrong to me. It just depends on your definition, I think. Because well, it's yeah, obviously narrow. That's what I mean. It, it, it depends what you what you <laughs> define as intelligence. Let's not get into what <laughs> is intelligence. And then we'll go into what is creativity and we'll go down the rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, yeah. I always... Okay, I'm going to do it, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it, Simon. I, I always try <laughs> and give a fair test, which is, what if my four-year-old daughter said these things? Would I think that was coming from an intelligence or just... If it's not coming from an intelligence in her... And where is it coming from? The, the software get. I haven't actually seen much of the output, but I've seen a little bit of it. And it it's pretty good. Mm. What if it's not intelligence? What is it then? Is it? It's kind of like a collective merging of human writing. Mm. That some, but there there is something in it. It's more than just. It's not random. It's not like a mashup. It's more than that, but I'm, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. A, a distillation. That, that was the other. The third way of interpreting this is a, is we're seeing yeah, into the collective mind. Distilled. Because it, like like we were saying earlier, it's because of the the strangeness of it, the mistakes that it makes, mm. the inconsistencies, or the repetitive you know things that it repeats for apparently no real reason apart mm. from it just seems to have this thing about repeating. Mm. Maybe we should stop thinking of it in normal terms. You're asking the wrong questions. Why is it doing that? Why is it repeating this? You're asking it those questions as if it was a person who could answer it, as if it's someone you want to try and find out about. I don't. Yeah, maybe. Give, if it was a normal computer program, you know, outputting things based on a rules of, in the logic of the code, then you could ask, why is it doing that? Um, but there's a very easy answer to why it's doing that. You can just follow the trace of the of the inputs through the neural network, and you'll you'll see where it comes out with. Mm. And that's always going to be the only answer you'll get to questions of why from that. So maybe we should start educating ourselves on on different questions to ask of neural networks, which won't be quite so frustrating. Well, we can't do that. And with with the 1.5 billion parameter model, and let's assume that that's not the end of it. There's probably going to be a three billion or a mm. 20 billion parameter model eventually. Sure. It's going to be beyond human comprehension to be able to actually even reverse engineer it at a, at a at, at any level that makes it understandable. But but human brains are that big, and they're not. Well, beyond we don't understand human. them. Well, exactly, and and mm. we get by and we live with it. So we do that by probing, by testing, by asking questions and getting responses. Mm. And you can you can probe a neural network by just putting things into it and seeing what you get out, mm. exploring the latent space, things like that. Yeah. Um, understanding why it does a particular thing is probably the wrong way of. Um, of wrong question to that. ask. I agree with that. Yeah, I guess I'm. I'm more interested in the use of them as a way of stimulating human creativity and rethinking. You know, as, as a source of ideas, as a source of inspiration, as a source of conceptualizing things differently, rather than them being an artistic medium in their own right. Like, I'm not so interested in the idea that you can. You would just. You would go to a poetry reading by. A, GPT-2 algorithm and everyone would sit around and think, yeah, that's great. I mean, that it could happen. Mm. But I like the idea more that it's something that stimulates you to rethink your own conceptualization, which is actually what good art does too, right? Sure. Well but said, John. My, well said. Thanks. My, well, I might <laughs> counter you. that. My guess might be that it might be disappointing in that respect. So, you know, I led this European project called the What If Machine. Um, yep. And we found that generating the text was not, 
at all difficult. So this was for fictional ideation. What did you use? Good old fashioned natural no neural nets were used. No, we didn't use neural networks. It was, a, ah. it, it was we could have on the cusp, but we'd have spent all of our time learning about neural networks and getting <laughs> bad results. We wanted to go for good results. Yeah. And it came up with fictional ideas like. Um, the famous one from Douglas Adams, what if birds aren't singing, but they're really screaming because they're afraid of heights? <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a lovely mm. what if. Mm. Um, yeah. And our software came out with things like that. Um, and the generation side wasn't easy, but it wasn't that difficult. But we never felt like the software had come up with an idea. So we couldn't probe the software and say, why did you say that thing about... What, what, what do you well, mean you never thought it came up with an idea? It didn't. It came up with checks which we, as people, could interpret as ideas. So they were stimulating that respect, but it wasn't mm. the kind of stimulation you get from an artist because if, you, if an artist gives you an idea, you can ask that artist what he or she was thinking, or at least you can... Sometimes. You can at least try and work that out yourself. You can project, you can romanticise even. Mm. But you can't do that with uh, a neural network. You can't do that with um, any other bit of software yet. And so we, I, I felt like as a stimulus, yes, it's a music. can give you things which you can run with. And then we had applications um, to musical theatre, in fact. <laughs> um, but I never felt that I had an idea. I felt that, and I don't think GPT-2 is. GPT-Q could literally say, what if the world wasn't flat but was round? A classical idea which had a lot of import. Mm. Um, but it wouldn't know what the hell that meant. It wouldn't be able, you wouldn't be able to say, what do you mean by round? You, you couldn't even ask the, the most basic well, question no, but of the, it. but the irony is you could then type a sentence and say, what do you mean by round? And it would actually tell ah. you. Mm. But it doesn't, it doesn't have... It might uh, not make the link. It does have a concept of round in it mm. because semantically yeah. it, it knows what round is so so again that's maybe another chance for us to rethink the way we we do things that yes it does have understanding but it's not the same understanding as we have it it's not able to verbalize it's no not able it's to, not it doesn't think like we think yeah um, but it does have an understanding yeah i yeah, agree yeah wow. but this this is the challenge is in coming to terms with an alien intelligence is an alien intelligence in a way that's mm. not intelligent like people are even though that you know the goal of ai was always to make intelligent machines in the way that people are intelligent yeah this has been a big blind alley from yeah my, from my perspective exactly and we've ended up making machines that you know in some senses we can call intelligent but their intelligence is nothing like an individual human brain is intelligent but the way the ai research is going is to make it more and more and more anthropomorphic to, so when resnet or gets every image correct on ImageNet, mm. um, I think that will be a very sad day. Um, because well, it pretty much has, hasn't it? They've stopped running stopped the, competition. the competition. Yeah. Um, and and I, so I do think it's a very sad day because we, <laughs> we can't use ResNet now in creative ways to tell us. But it, it, it's still very bad. I mean, so why, why can't we use it in creative well, ways? Well, we, if, if they got to the stage where ResNet would say, you give it an image and it says, actually, that's an abstract artwork which looks like a bit like a, a turkey, but it isn't a turkey. Well, but it can't do um, that. It can't do that. So that, that's the kind of perfection that they're going towards with Resonant. That you presume that they should, they should have a competition for adversarial examples. I'm sure they have, actually. They're, what they should have is an example of, you know, there's the classic one. I can't remember the name of the artist who's done it, but uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of parody of Magritte's This Is Not A Pipe. Sessiness. No, yes, yeah. yeah. Simon <laughs> well, spent a lot of time in France. I've so, seen the original. Yeah, so have I. And, but, okay, all right. But the interesting thing about it is that semantically, of course, we can look at that artwork and we can see the picture of the pipe and the text that says this is not a pipe in French and we understand the kind of joke, the mm. art joke about it. But you show it to a ResNet and it will go, yeah, it's a pipe. It doesn't get the joke. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't, but the, presumably... The, it can't make the semantic leap. 
but it, sh- it will. If, if we carry on anthropomorphizing um, and it gets further and further and further, it should, um, should say, yeah, it's not a pipe, it's a painting of a pipe. But it still looks a bit like a pipe. Th- this is what I worry about. We're going to lose the otherworldliness. We're going to lose the alien intelligence, and we're just going to get another human. We've got plenty of them. It's like, what, what, what is the end goal for this? So, um, so what, what should we be doing, though? I mean, the problem is we have no other examples of intelligence to model intelligence on apart from animals, animals yeah. and, and our own. Mm. Uh, well, we, could, we should just celebrate the otherworldliness of it, celebrate the fact that it isn't human um, and try and encourage that. Uh, try and, well, I've, I mentioned this last week and have been doing through the week, the machine condition, try and realise that there oh, are that now... chestnut, yeah. Yeah, that old chestnut. <laughs> There are now amongst us non-human intelligences, however you want to define that. If, if well, aliens there, came to us... there's always been non-human intelligences amongst us. Sure, but they were... Well, they were... Well, one, that's fine, but now we have new ones. Yeah. Um, and if aliens came to Earth, would we, would we try and mould them to be like humans? It would be a shame. We'd want to celebrate their culture. I mean, it's a bit like imperialism, going to foreign lands and, you know, beating them into being British or Christian or whatever... But, did, a, but effectively, with the training data that we're training them with, that is what we're doing. Mm. Exactly. So this is another drawback to deep learning, which I, in my, with my dinosaur hat on, <laughs> uh, I worry about. That training by example doesn't necessarily lead to very imaginative leaps. And all the imaginative leaps actually take place in our minds. So whenever we read something cool in GPT-2, which we think, wow, what a cool idea, it's mm. that, that the idea is taking place in our minds, not in GPT-2 minds, because it's learning more and more from examples. And you give it, rather than 8 million texts, you give it 800,000 million texts, and you give it a trillion node network to learn, it's just going to output exactly... I mean, I guess we're getting into overfitting, but um, (laughs) it's going to become less and less interesting the the more and more powerful it gets. I'll put that out there to you guys. Do you think GPT-3, 4, 5, 6 will be less interesting because it's better at generative text? Not necessarily, no. I mean, I think there is like something about you know, like what is that? What is that saying from like Brian Eno about like the? Um, I don't know if you know this, but like the aesthetic of like old technology, and when once once you kind of like get past it, and you go from like VHS to DVD to like you know streaming, you kind of like are nostalgic for that old aesthetic. So I feel like a similar thing probably happened with um, machine learning and AI kind of aesthetics. That, that is a. And that's a sort of reoccurring trope in a lot of science fiction films that people, you know, it's a kind of way of nostalgia for older intelligent technology that yeah. you were, was yeah. a little bit nicer and not quite as good and you felt no, you, you understood yeah. it more. It was like, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about nostalgia kicking in. I'm talking about it's... <laughs> I just mean artistically. I feel like people would want, would want to go back to that time when it wasn't so perfect. But I mean... Or, yeah, because perfection think- doesn't have... As much interest as yeah. imperfection. This yeah. is an old artistic trope as well. I think creatively, maybe it would. It would. I'm not sure. You know, I, look, I don't know. I think that by the time that it's better, there's going to be different applications, like creative applications, that also could be just as interesting. The thing is, if you you go f- okay, let's imagine in the future because that was what I was going to kind of finish up on, ask the question, but I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. But if it gets better and better, you start to think, well, is you know, what's the voice of the author then? Is it, if it can answer, if it can, if you you start it with a seed with a sentence and saying, uh, "I feel unhappy," and then it just starts rambling on. I mean, what it, every time you if, if you do actually seed the current model with that sentence, you'll get a different bit of text every time. Uh, I like to think of it as a as a distillation of a collective intelligence. If you train it on Reddit articles, 
if you trained it on the works of Tolkien and you gave it the first page of the two towers and it mm. literally completed the entire book right down to the last full stop at the end that would be very uninteresting because you, all you've done is realize that it's it's produced mm. it uh, wouldn't you know, it, it wouldn't ever do that no but yeah. the, i'm going to the extreme as academics tend to do and I'm, mm. I'm saying that is where they're going with gpt that that should be the end goal which is to take one page um and and the trained collective works and and output exactly the same thing no. that the author would have come up with you don't think so, Nina? Well, I mean, that's just overfitting, right? You can we can do that. Well, no, because it's never seen that text. Uh, okay. I see if he never sees a text, it can't be overfitting. It's not so much that it would create an exact work that already exists, but it would create a work that people might consider to be of equal. Well, but that quality. would be interesting. But yeah. that's not where they're going with GPT two. I think with with, uh, with these. How do you know that? Well, because it's example based. You know, we, we're not going to give it less of Tolkien's works, we're going to give it more and more and more. So it's going to get more and more higher and higher fidelity with the works of Tolkien. It, th- that's the only way to do it. But but I do like the idea of this kind of Creole, the melange. Um, so if you gave it Tolkien and yeah. J.K. Rowling, and this is what Francois Pache does with music, mm. you give it different influences, yeah. like we get as people, then its voice might be a lot more interesting. But um, just training it on one author will be would be boring. Training it on the whole world's authors... I think that's where we get a distillation of the collective intelligence. I agree with you, Simon, which is so surprising. (laughs) (laughs) It must be the beer. (laughs) All right. So maybe just to finish off, I wanted to project into the future because I'm really curious as to, so at the moment it's a kind of interesting research experiment and, you know, to OpenAI's credit, at least they're open enough to release the model and let people play with it. And there's lots of interesting kind of, you know, examples springing up on the internet where people are using it or they're creating not even necessarily artworks, but just examples or demos that are interesting. But where do you think this is going in the future? I mean, one thing that I don't know if it worries me, I think it should worry me, is that do you think people will become increasingly dependent on AIs to, to do their storytelling for them? Like we used to rely on authors to to tell us the stories that really move us or that we really enjoy. You know, like there's nothing like reading a great story in a good book. But imagine if this, if if you have this AI that's sort of got the collective wisdom of humanity and is, is is able to tell you the stories that you like all the time. Do you think we'd become reliant on it, or, or we come to trust it, like we tell it our problems? Because you know we've already talked about this. We feel yeah. more comfortable telling a machine about our problems than often than other people because the machine doesn't judge, mm. and the machine gives you back advice. I think the one thing we might miss is the water cooler moment, which we've already lost with streaming. You can watch whatever you want, whenever you want. It used to be in the old days of just three channels on TV, you'd all meet in the playground the next morning and say, did you see that on TV last night? Um, but the way that streaming works now with their staggered release, everyone does watch you know, The Irishman or yeah, whatever they, on Netflix. They do try and bring that back so they can have headlines. and, and, yeah. and that. So we all talk about it around the water cooler because it just got released yesterday and True. we were watching it. Um, but that has been you know, diluted with, with streaming. I would love, for example, to be able to use a neural network to write a story for my four-year-old that I read to her for 10 minutes before bed, knowing that that story was tailored to her based on what she's done or maybe what she's said. And it was really quite personal. The kind of thing you make up as a dad. I mean, I would try Mm. and make up a story like that, but Mm. most nights I'm a bit tired for that. (laughs) And so I'll make it one about Rumpelstiltskin and, you know, (laughs) rehash something. So So it's it's really just sort of automating creativity or it's a a skill that you would have tried to do yeah not everyone can do that not everyone is a natural storyteller so lots of people will find uses of it but now even if you tried 
you're not going to try anymore because of the machine does it better. True. You might you might feel you're not connecting as much um, and you're not trying hard enough, for sure. And they won't with this water cooler moment, like, did you read about that bit in, in Harry mm. Potter and the, the Philosopher's Stones? Because every story is individual to a person. Hmm. I guess it just I feel like it depends on how it's released. Like if you are getting to if you are, have the ability to or the accessibility to work with this technology yourself, then I feel like it's almost kind of you discovering that kind of makes almost gives you a little bit of authorship, or you kind of like finding the gem or find you know kind of curating it gives you a little bit of authorship. But if it's kind of I mean, how is this stuff released? Like, is it just on? You know what I mean? How are we getting access to? Well, it? but I imagine it's going to be further and further integrated into our lives. So you know, there was a, there was an article this week about Grammarly starting to suggest more things about how you're writing, and you know, and Google has that thing in their mail where it'll give you the one line reply automatically but imagine with a more advanced gpt2 that it would write all your letters for you it oh, would right. it would it would kind of media it could even mediate a lot of interaction between people so formal written communication verbal communication and imagine if you know you you put a, a natural language uh, or a speech to text front end on it and you can start talking to it and it starts giving you long answers you know siri and mm. alexa and all those things uh you know, designed for function, but they're not devices that you have, you know, you don't, you don't think of them as fortune tellers or savants or yeah. psychologists or doctors or any of those things. Yeah. You think of them as just assistants, but what if they start to have this sort of, you know, uber complex personality that somehow the collective distillation of, of human writing. That's well, like her. It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But then I should tell my own party line about this, which is, um, without all the other philosophy which I've tried to bring to bear on this, there will be human writing is extremely good. So, and and will continue it's, to it's be the best example of writing we have. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and um, so, even if software gets that good, people will always have the edge, which is being human. Yeah. So, if I've got two texts to read to my four-year-old, and I'm not, you know, one has been made by a machine and one's by a person, and it's not personalized, and they're both as good as each other. I read the one by the person because. My child might ask me what um, what that author did in her life, or you know some backstory. You can ask the GPT to that. <laughs> it will make good it luck, up. Good luck getting an answer. Well, yeah, um, if if you it will, uh, <laughs> you can look it up. <laughs> sure, but, you know, but that would feel inauthentic. This is something I've yeah. written about well, as well. I, I, I agree. Will feel inauthentic. I, I, I think I think your daughter's safe, but I'm I'm worried about. <laughs> Uh, you know, like these days, parents give their kids iPads and just you know because it's kind of a recreational thing. And you have oh, never did that. you have kids who you know they're going up to magazines and trying to pinch to zoom them because they think everything. I love should that. Be. There's a video of a baby doing that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh my god, that's creepy. But you know, you say oh, I would just prefer the human read story. But if the iPad is reading kids a story and the kids are liking it, and it's just you know it's because it can endlessly generate fiction. So if you know everyone complained that J.K. Rowling only wrote. I mean, was it seven Harry Potter books or how many yeah, she wrote? Seven, yeah. And, you know, there's all pressure on her to do one more and things. But with GPT-2, it's never-ending. Well, it's we we don't have that problem of people dying. Who's the author of the uh, Game of Thrones, the uh, Fire and Ice series? Um, he's There's a chance that... He's like, still alive, though. I know, but the, everyone's <laughs> putting pressure on him to finish the series before ah. he dies. And he and he feels this, and he, and he writes about how it's all... Someone's stone. All, all, all. Yeah, we really should know this, but... I don't watch it. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, the the, the TV series has ended well before um, he's finished the, the the book series, and people are worried that he will go to the grave without um, having finished. Yeah. I, that's unlikely to happen for GPT too. Yeah, it'll live forever. Quite positive about it, Simon. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> subject to my 
proviso that you know <laughs> it's inauthentic. Um, but if we if we stop thinking about it as a human and start thinking about it as a collective intelligence distillation, um, and uh, I think then we can think of it as as a non-human, otherworldly intelligence, and celebrate that. Okay, to, just to finish off, I just I had this um, amazing idea because I was reading about Voyager. You know, has left the solar system. It's left. You know, it's it's going into deep space, and. You know, on those early Voyager spacecraft, they put those plaques, which are supposed to be, you know, and they it was supposed to be decodable by alien intelligences. Oh, yeah. They had like the distance between a hydrogen atom to show units <laughs> of measurement, and I think one of them has a picture of a man and a woman, and yeah, all you know, that stuff. Imagine pushing a GPT two <laughs> into the deep space, and then in billions of years time, of you know, an, a, another intelligence on another planet uncovers it and says, oh, "Okay, this is the collective mm. intelligence of humanity." <laughs> Would I mean, it be better than the plaque? Oh, it's truly science fiction now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, why not? I mean, we always used to think that you'd have to go into deep freeze or clone or something, but why not just send a digital version of a of a, of a of the of entirety ourselves. of... Or, yeah, but but more than that, the entirety of humanity in one neural network rather than, you know, just one person. Um, mm. That would be more representative. Mm. All right, on that note, I think that was, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> Cool. Um, discussion. Thanks for listening. Uh, like us on Facebook because nobody does because we don't use it. But uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> whatever. Subscribe to our podcast, and uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks for another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. See ya. Bye bye.